0: Well, having come to both a natural breaking point in our series of sermons, um, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, to this day, specially celebrated by Christians as Palm Sunday, referring, of course, to the palms that the people pulled off the trees and waved as flags of liberation and then cast down before the Lord and the road as he entered Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, thus kicking off the events, of course, that would lead directly to the cross, we're going to turn to a different place in Scripture. So I invite your attention with me, please, to the letter entitled Hebrews in your Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 2. Now, before we get to the reading, it will help us to understand this chapter better if we remember a couple of things. First, that this letter was written to Christians, Likely Hebrew Christians, hence the title, who were suffering for the faith. For them, becoming Christians, becoming followers of Christ, required a very high cost. They lost their families in many cases, were ostracized for becoming followers of Christ. In many cases, they lost their livelihoods and their friends and even their homes. As is the case for many today, still in the world, following Christ cost them everything. So the temptation, of course, was to let loose of Christ in order to be restored to the old comforts. The cost just seemed too high. The sore temptation was to return then to the form of Judaism that they had left, that first century Judaism, which, by the way, and we've often made this point, was not at all biblical Judaism, not true to the scripture. But it was familiar, and it was comfortable, and it was acceptable to their families, and obviously uh, much, much less costly. So these are Christians, relatively new Christians, young Christians in the faith and the world their world has been rocked. Everything that seemed secure to them has now been shaken loose. The second thing to remember is that wrapped up in that form of Judaism to which they were tempted to return was a fascination with angels and the superiority of angels. So much so that they actually believe that the world to come would be subject to them, to the angels. Naturally, then, it would be tempting for them to compare Jesus with the angels. And it's understandable that doing so, it seemed on the face of it that Jesus fared quite poorly in comparison with the angels. Figures that they were of such might and glory and, and pure spirituality. So the author of this letter has been at pain so far to demonstrate that in fact, earthly appearances notwithstanding, Jesus is superior to the angels. His humanity not at all diminishing that fact. The world was made by him, not by angels. The world to come will be subject to him, not to the angels. He's on the throne, not the angels. The angels serve him. So the author is trying to convince, he's seeking to convince these new and unsteady believers whose lives have been upended by recent events that Jesus, in whom they've placed their trust, is worthy, full worthy of that trust for, for a number of reasons, many reasons, including his superiority to the angels. In other words, because he is king. Of course, the pathway to kingship has been striking and strange, to say the least. We've just been singing about it in... And recalling it to ourselves. And that's the point of this passage that we come to this Palm Sunday morning. Hebrews chapter 2. After we pray. Now, Father, once again we come to you. Pleading for you to send your spirit. That he may illumine our hearts. The same spirit who inspired this word to begin with. That we may see Jesus. Jesus in his glory and honor. We pray it in his name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll read the 18 verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable Feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him through suffering for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, we subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It hardly means saying that this is a Palm Sunday, the likes of which we have never known. Even as we sing and celebrate our King Jesus' entrance into the world, I mean into Jerusalem to accomplish our salvation, there on the cross, remembering the people crying out, Hosanna to the King and worshiping Him, our nation has been brought to its knees. And from what heights? You know, just a few months ago, we were in one of the longest. What's called bull markets in recent history. Our nation gloried in our strength. And not only our nation, but others as well. China was flexing its muscles economically and militarily. Europe was gearing up for the season, and, and then came then along came this, this tiny microbe. We call it coronavirus because of its appearance under examination with a, an electron microscope we see we see that each virion is surrounded by a corona or a halo of pointy structures and therefore the appearance of a crown corona As most of you know very, very well by now, uh, the English word corona comes from, uh, uh, the English word crown, rather, comes from the Latin word corona. Maybe you find a little bit of irony, then, in the name coronavirus. It has indeed come to rule, hasn't it? Coronavirus has come to rule us, this invisible and and terrible, and cruel, little tyrant. It dominates our thoughts, our movements, our dreams, our actions, and it's humbled us nationally. It has brought us, even globally, to the dust. The reason that these little packets of nucleic acids wrapped in a coating of Protein that exists somewhere between the, on the border between chemistry and, and life strikes such fear in us is, of course, not in their being, but in what they bring where they go, death. That's the real slavery and universal. Verse 15, the fear of death to which human beings are subject all their lives long that That fear, that's the fear that takes its tyrannical grip on human hearts when they hear the talking head say on the television that potentially two hundred thousand Americans or maybe many, many more may lose their lives to this crowned virus. But for us, followers of Jesus Christ, there's another corona. there's another corona that we. See, not within an electron microscope, nor even with the naked eye, but we see that crown just as clearly. We see him. Verse 9 Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We jesum gloria et honore coronatum. That's how it reads in the Latin version of the scripture, the Vulgate. That's the corona that fills our sight, the crown that we see, the supreme corona. Jesus Christ is now, even at this very moment, and with everything that's going on around us and around the world right now, the ambulances, the packed hospital wards, the makeshift morgues Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven, crowned in glory and honor, and there is nothing, nothing that is outside of his sovereign control. Verse 8 not viruses, not individual virions, not death itself. So death for us as Christians becomes not something to fear, but a vocation, a calling to follow. That isn't pleasant. Going through death is going to require courage divinely supplied We might prefer to step around death, you know, to make that bypass around the valley. But we will find ourselves, all of us, every one of us, unless Jesus returns first, find ourselves passing through what King David calls the valley of the shadow of death. But we can enter that valley fearlessly, without fear. Why? Because our king. And because our king is also our shepherd. Like a king, a shepherd has weapons, a rod, a staff. And like a good king, he goes with his subjects and he protects his subjects and he guards them through the valleys. And that's why we keep our eyes on him, on our king. And when our heart is filled with him, fear Even the dark shadow of death is driven out. It's just banished by the light of the crown of the glory and honor of the crown of our king that drives it away. All that fear and all that darkness. What's so striking, though, about our king and about the, the glory and honor of his crown is the way that he came to possess it the way that he came into that crown. It would have been understandable if you had fallen out of your chair when I read that line just a few minutes ago because it truly is astonishing, verse 9, that he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death now who's death he's crowned with glory and honor because there exists suffering and death in general is that it he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering involved in human death and our death no because of his suffering of death he is crowned with glory and honor go on with me in verse 9 jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Paul agrees in his Letter draws that same causal uh, connection in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2 with familiar words to us. Jesus Christ did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross therefore there's the connection in hebrews we just read because here it is therefore but both are saying the same thing therefore god has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name just another way to say christ is king Jesus is king, and the way he became king was by blazing a path as far as he possibly could in the opposite direction of glory. The deepest humility and humiliation. It's a path that we consider this morning in a little more detail It's a path we see him taking in earnest, indeed, on our celebration of Palm Sunday today, humbly clip plopping his way into Jerusalem, not on a great war horse, and not on a great steed, mighty in glory, no stately stallion, but on the back of a donkey in the dusty backwaters of the Roman Empire. Of course all his life was this way wasn't it all his life was a way of humility just just think about it scan back with me not long ago we were celebrating christmas together in this house of worship weren't we as a congregation looking into the face of that child born where in a smelly stable because there was no room for him In the inn, laid in a manger whose roughly hewn wood was but an early harbinger of the cross. Hunted by Herod's henchmen, this family first fled south down to Egypt and then ended up going all the way up north to far-flung Galilee. I was reminded this week that Jesus' Galilean accent, perhaps it was even the same accent that gave Peter away this week that we're entering into or celebrating this week, that same accent I say that gave Peter away to the high priest's servant girl, made Jesus sound like a hick. Jesus sounded like a hillbilly in Jerusalem. When the time came for one of Jesus' closest companions to betray him then, what was required? What was the price? the book value of a slave. 30 pieces of silver. You can look it up in Exodus 21. Then he was crowned, you remember, with a corona, to be sure, a corona of thorns. Blindfolded, beaten, flogged, spat upon, mocked, scorned, and when it came time for his death, only the most painful, shameful, humiliating death would do crucifixion, stripped bare, naked, and exposed before the whole world. Of course, for all of this to happen, our king had to take the initial and great act of humiliation and humility. He had to become a man. God the Son took to himself human Flesh, and in so doing, he did two things. Two things. He, our king, associated himself completely with us, and our king triumphed completely for us. First, consider with me how our king associated himself completely with us as a genuine human being, three ways in particular, in family, in faith, and in frailty. God the Son, first of all, Jesus, made himself part of our family. That's the point of verse 11, isn't it? He who sanctifies And those who are sanctified have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. That is, the Holy One who makes us holy, that's what that means, the sanctified one sanctifying us, the Holy One making us holy, actually became one of us. He became a true and genuine human being, the Son of God. Came and shared our huma- humanity and our humility, our humiliation. No angel could ever do that or ever did. And this idea that, that he's not ashamed to call us brothers, he's not ashamed to call you and me his brothers. Eyes. forging this identity with us, he was identifying himself with a totally unworthy people. Second, the Son of God lived by faith. Now, in what I've just said, we have jumped into the deep end of the pool, haven't we? But this is certainly the point of that quotation in verse 13. I will put my trust in him. This is Jesus saying this. Do you understand that Jesus Christ, as a real and genuine human being, as a man, had to live by faith in exactly precisely the same way that you and I have to live by faith? The same way. Jesus had to believe the same promises, many of which had yet to be fulfilled. He had to trust in God, whom he could not see. He had to depend on the help of God that can only be grasped by faith. Just like you. Just like me. Just exactly the way we do. Dear flock, when you think of Jesus, please remember this he had no more in his arsenal for living the human life than you do. What Paul said, and what you say, Jesus could say, and said, the life I live, I live by faith. The German clergyman scholar, Albert Bengel, once wrote that the most fragrant part of of Christ's sin-atoning sacrifice was His unshaken trust in His Father's faithfulness and love. So the Son of God fully identified Himself and associated Himself with us by becoming human family with us. By living by faith as we must. And third, no less astonishing, Our King has fully identified us by sharing our frailty. Our frailty. Verse 14, Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on that spiritual frailty with which you and I struggle all the time. How else could He have been tempted? I mean sorely tried and tempted. To the very precipice of diving headlong into sin. How could Jesus have been brought to that place? How could he have suffered that way when tempted unless he shared the same spiritual frailty that you and I suffer every day? He did. The wilderness temptations, as we reminded ourselves recently in our series in Matthew, was not a pageant. It wasn't a play. He suffered those temptations exactly the way you would. And the way you do. He lived His life, particularly the years of His adulthood and His ministry. Not just the day or two or three or four before the cross. Under the crushing weight of his responsibility, there was the spiritual frailty. There was also entered into our physical frailty. You know, on those long nights of prayer that we read about, Jesus had to fight off sleep. When Jesus was making his way along the road and stepped on a rock the wrong way, the pain shot up his leg, it hurt. He knew burning thirst and aching hunger and indigestion. He knew what it was to ache in his back for his muscles to tighten up a Charlie horse. He knew he suffered sickness too. He was subject to coronavirus, just like you are. Now, you all knew this already, but. But I was uh, very interested to discover, as I was reading recently, that coronaviruses actually are a whole family of viruses, all of which have spiky protein around the surface. We, we've all had coronavirus. Everybody, everybody in the hearing eye voice, you've all had coronavirus at some time in your life. Perhaps multiple times you've had because coronavirus... A coronavirus causes the common cold. That means that Jesus suffered a coronavirus at some time in his life, doesn't it? Maybe multiple times. Think about him as a child and he suffered colds and runny noses and his mother had to wipe his face. And also as a man. Here's a thought. Save for the protecting hand of His Father, Jesus might Himself have been among those who died during His lifetime from contracting one virus or another. Listen to how Samuel Rutherford puts it. He would be of blood to us not only to come to the sick and to our bedside, but would lie down and be sick. Taking on Him sick clay and be in that condition of clay a worm and not a man that He might pay our debts and and would borrow a man's heart To sigh for us. Man's eyes to weep for us. His spouse's body, legs, and arms to be pierced for us. Our earth, our breath, our life and soul that He might breathe out His life for us. A man's tongue and soul to pray for us. Oh, what love! Christ would not entrust our redemption to angels, even to millions of angels, but he would come himself and in person suffer. He would not give a low and base price for us clay. He would buy us with a great ransom so that he might overbuy us. And no one could ever overbid him in the market, in his market for souls. If there had been millions of more believers, and many heavens without any new bargain. His blood should have bought them all, and all these many heavens should have smelled of one rose of life. Christ should have been one and the same tree of life in them all. Oh, we underbid. We undervalue that prince of love who did overvalue us. We will not sell all we have to buy him. He sold all he had and himself too to buy us. Now, having associated Himself completely with us, second, our King triumphed over death completely for us. That's the whole point of of this, isn't it? Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. To use the thoughts of the prince of the Puritans, John Owen, it was the death of death in the death of Christ. How did he do it? Just this. It's a big word in the Bible. Propitiation. Verse 17. He made propitiation for the people. It means that He suffered Himself the wrath that was due us. The punishment for our sins. We deserve death. And He suffered it. He underwent all the punishment for our sin in our place. This is what He's told us even this morning. He gave his life as a ransom for many to deliver us from death to eternal life. That is why we, as Christians, even as death visits and is visiting very near to us, are not subject to the fear. We're just not. We're not afraid of death. For us, the power of death has been destroyed. Because verse 14, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And we see him now. We see him, my brothers and sisters. We see him today just as vividly as the Roman soldiers saw him with that crown of thorns. As clearly as we've seen that, that crowned virus now in pictures ad nauseum over these past several years. Weeks we see him now. We see him. Now. We see the crown of honor and glory. How do we see it? We see it by faith, with the eyes of our hearts, and that's what faith is. We see him now, and get this—he sees us more than that. He sympathizes with us. He feels with us. When we find ourselves immersed in all of these harsh realities of human experience, He knows and He helps because He Himself has suffered it all. Even the loss of a loved one. The pain that we are suffering right now as a congregation, Jesus knows. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Remember how He grieved. Remember how Jesus groaned. How the tears were pressed from His ducks. How He wept at the side of His friend Lazarus lying in the tomb. There is no pain that we undergo that He does not know and that He does not share. He, verse 16, He helps us. And let me tell you, Wonderfully so. It's translated elsewhere in Hebrews this way, but the word here literally in the Greek is He takes our hands. He takes our hand. He is holding your hand, dear child of God, and He will not let it go. is that we're not enough we're still not at the end there's another crown there's another crown for us to consider as we finish and that is our own because Jesus has triumphed over death and the devil there lies before us after this life eternal life what will we be doing then when all of our weeping and all of our grief and all of our tears and all of our sadness are over, when we ourselves have passed through the valley of the shadow of death, what will we do then when all is said and done, when we are resurrected and have new bodies? Well, many things. But among them this. Rule. We will rule. We will reign. A corona, a crown, is waiting for you in heaven. Sisters, brothers, you will be crowned. As you by faith see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, Even now, looking on Him, you discover both the proof and the pledge of yourself someday being crowned with the very same. The glory, the honor. He is the ground. He is the guarantee of your glory and your glorification. In Revelation 3, Jesus says this to the saints to... uh, Not to put too fine a point on it, he says to us, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's you! That's you, Christian, that he's talking about. You will sit with Jesus on the throne of God who rules over all. And he gets even more specific Going back to Revelation 2, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Paul puts it similarly and and succinctly this way in his letter to a young pastor named Timothy. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Let this sink in. Dear brothers and sisters, let this sink deep into your hearts. You will wear crowns of honor and glory too. And that forever and ever and ever. Your certain corona because of the supreme corona of Christ. We finish with this, just a paragraph from the late Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren. Brother, He became like us in our sorrows that we might become like Him in His gladness. Each of us singly was in His mind and in His heart when He bowed Himself to the flood of sorrows and yielded His soul to the cross of shame so let us stretch out our poor hands to him who reaches his tender and omnipotent one across the billows and grasping the hands with the print of the nails we shall find that we have exchanged portions and that he who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows has bestowed upon us His gladness and crowned us with the glory of the blessedness which He had with the Father before the world was. Amen.